Hey guys, welcome to Books in the City pod. Today we're bringing you a really insightful and engaging interview with Bethany C. Morrow. Yes, uh, today we're talking to Bethany about her debut YA novel, A Song Below Water, but Bethany's also written Mem, which is an adult um, novel, and the YA anthology Take the Mic, which she's the editor of. So for those of you who don't know A Song Below Water, um, you should, because it's got this like gorgeous cover the cover is amazing you've probably seen it around instagram i posted a picture of it like with the pool in the background not to make it about me (laughs) it's yeah it's kind of like um very photogenic and the i mean bethany and becky and i kind of go into detail about what the book's about and what it means um but essentially it's a, a love letter to kind of the black female audience um and and is there for everyone to hear um because it's a really well sketched fantasy world about sirens and what it means to speak up and use your voice as a black woman about what it means to like interrogate your identity as a as a young person um and all of this kind of exists in in reality adjacent portland and it was just like a delight to read there were there were some twists in there that i was like oh yeah and uh and a lot of really impactful statements um that that have and will always have a lot of meaning for for you know history so yeah and this is also it's it's there's mermaids there's gargoyles there's like all different kinds of things for everyone and um it's a really renaissance yeah renaissance fairs which the renaissance fair sounded like get me a ticket yeah bethany may or may not have promised us um an exclusive ticket to her renaissance fair that she's gonna run starring (laughs) effie as the mermaid actually we did get Um, an exclusive ticket and it is called a song below water yeah yeah uh, yeah, so it was, it was a pleasure speaking with her, and uh, we got to talk a little bit about what's on the docket for her in the future. Um, yes. And both Becky oh and gosh. I like love this so much, and we're we're working our way through Mem too because it was it was so good. Yeah, um, we're really excited about what's coming next for her. And you know, enough about us, enough enough about our thoughts. Let's hear it from Bethany herself. Enjoy yeah. this interview with Enjoy. Bethany Seymour. This is going to be the best book you ever read. Like this is your new favorite book. Off the internet, man, off the bookstagram. I need to go be (laughs) introverted. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Books in the City. I'm Becky. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. Welcome, Bethany. We're so excited to have you here today. Yay. Thank you for having me. Um, so can you let our listeners know in your own words, like an elevator pitch, what A Song Below Water is about? Sure. So A Song Below Water is a young adult contemporary fantasy set in sort of an alternate Portland, Oregon. Um, alternate in the sense that magical and fantastical creatures exist alongside us. And in this world, um, sirens are exclusively Black girls. And because of that, they are feared and suppressed. And our, we have two main characters. One of them is named Tavia. She knows at the beginning of the book that she is a siren and it is an identity that she has to keep secret for her own safety as well as the safety of her family. She has a sister friend named um, Effie who uh, lives with them and she is sort of becoming something and she is having a very hard time because she does not know what that something is. 
Right. Yeah. I like that description. We're excited to hear more about that. Um, but we were kind of reading about your background and we saw that you studied sociology and clinical psychology and spent some time studying theater and film, which makes me happy because I'm a former theater nerd. Um, so <laughs> how do you feel all these different disciplines go into your work as a writer and did they impact how you wrote a song below water? I am always like, I'm such a contrarian. I have to say that right up front because I've been writing ever since I could write. So I absolutely don't credit my work to any discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, If anything, I went into sociology because it made sense to me. I was very, I was interested in psychology, but I was also very confused as to how you could study an individual without understanding the community around them and how they were raised Mm. and all that kind of stuff. So um, I felt like sociology made the most sense, of course, in terms of like, and I still to this day, and I said this in my graduate program, like to a room full of of clinical psychologists, but like, I don't think anybody should be allowed to do psychology if they haven't done sociology. Mm, that's um, a really good point. Yeah, I just, I, it's ridiculous to me. It's like trying to pretend that people are created in vacuums. Um, so right. I personally feel like I went into psychology and sociology because I was the kind of kid who watched um, Unsolved Mysteries and like at, in the middle of the night and was like confused when people told me things were um, upsetting in any way. Like, uh, but also that means that like I'll sometimes write stuff and people will be like, why would you do that? That's so upsetting. I'm like, there's nothing upsetting in this book. Um, I'm not yeah. a good gauge for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I just, I feel like, you know, I'm attracted to what I studied because of who I am and I was writing before I did that. So, you know, again, I just now said we're not created in a vacuum. So I'm like, sure, yeah. it's all going into it. It's all related, but I don't know what's causal and just what's correlated. Ooh, as a scientist, a I like that you differentiate the two. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yes, very important. Yeah, Emily is coming uh, to us from her lab right now. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Can I ask questions or will that totally like derail the, I mean, <laughs> the conversation? I would love if you ask me questions. <laughs> I would love to know what kind of lab you're coming from and like what you do. Oh my God, Bethany, my heart. <laughs> um, thank you for the attention. Um, I'm getting my PhD in, in immunology labs. So we study <gasps> antibodies, which are, are talked about a lot right now. Um, right, but not by enough immunologists, which I'm really, wanting to point out (laughs) yeah yeah that's true it's kind of tough because even within okay not to get on a tangent but I feel like even within immunology there's a lot of like t-cell people and then b-cell people are a smaller sector in immunology as is anything in the science disciplines can be very niche and that's kind of like the whole Mm -hmm. point um but yeah and then all of a sudden you get hit with a coronavirus and everyone wants to learn about plasma cells and serum and plasma as a treatment and all this and immunity and what does a vaccine do and I'm over here like I (laughs) hi (laughs) insult people who have been studying this longer than a couple of months maybe (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly and I'm still learning a lot so thanks for that is so cool asking (laughs) (laughs) a lot of that just went right over my head I love as it an artist. I, have, I have friends in who are doing the same thing, who are who are in the same sort of labs and stuff. So that's really right. cool. Where where are you currently located? So I'm on the border uh, of Quebec and North Country, New York, right now. Oh, um, okay. So I split 
I'm between the two. And yeah, so the people that I'm talking about are in Montreal. Okay. Shout out to all my scientists. They have really, yeah, they have good programs there. I think it is oh, like absolutely. a little mini immunology hub. So yeah, the Shum is there and uh, UDM and stuff. Yeah, they're they're known for that stuff. Well, I have another tangent. Do you speak French now or not? Uh, I don't, um, I would say that like, I, you know, I learned of course, um, standard French and, and that would all be outdated really because one of the things that like nobody I feel like talks about enough is like how in awe of literally fluent people we should be at all times because mm-hmm. of how much language evolves. So like I, date myself constantly by the way that I phrase things in French. And that's not even just because, mm. you know, I'm spending so much time in a, um, in a Quebecois French sort of, uh, environment, which of course is not the same as, um, as let's say like mainland French or whatever. But even if I were like, even when I went to Paris last year, it was like, right. Nobody says it like this anymore. Right. <laughs> like you can totally tell I'm speaking like nineties French right now. Um, uh-huh. so I, I definitely, I had someone, I had a, um, a Quebecois person ask me recently, like when I was going to write a book in French, because my first book, Mem, is set in, in Montreal. Yeah. Um, at, at, once we start talking about French, it really like, it makes my skin crawl every time I say it very Anglophone. I'm like Montreal. Um, uh-huh. but, <laughs> but I was like, oh, well, I would have to, I would have to learn it to write a book in French. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's quite the ask. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I speak French mostly to my son at this point. And like sometimes, sometimes on Twitter, it's it's really good on Twitter because then you're seeing how people speak colloquially presently right now in France, as opposed to just how we talk in Quebec, which like, yeah, is uh, quite, quite different. Yeah, so this is actually a really good lead into my next question, which, so the book is set in Portland and Vancouver a little bit. Um, How did you go about choosing these settings? Oh, that was like, that was 100% because of the time that I've spent in, in, uh, I don't want to keep saying Montreal because we're not talking about Montreal brain. (laughs) We're talking about the United States. Clicking. Okay. So uh, my sister lives in Portland, Oregon, and uh, she's been there for about 15 years. And I have uh, spent a lot of time with her there. And yeah, it's a real, it's a really specific place. Um, And it has a very specific, not just it has a specific experience, but it has a very specific self mythology. So um, and if you're a non white person in that space, you realize that that self mythology is like, I mean, I would like to say aspirational, but we could just say it's just not accurate. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not what we experience, and it certainly completely ignores the literal documented history of this place. Um, and so there was like a, and it, you know, it, it speaks to the huge problem with white liberalism and progressivism, which is basically just like, okay, we're just going to suddenly stop talking about what we have actually done. We're not going to do, we're not going to make any amends for those things. We're just going to start proceeding right. as though we've changed. And I'm like, mm, that's not how that works. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Like you literally wrote stuff into Labra. Like you have to actually do something about this and you have to actually take responsibility for it. And you can't just be like, okay, well, I'm just going to make this a personality trait because this is systemic and you are benefiting from and continue to benefit from a very white nationalist approach to statehood. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's not there by accident by any means. And literally everything that we're, that finally is sort of like coming 
I should say coming to light on Twitter because Twitter is a very specific place. And I feel like there are so many people who are super duper out of touch with Twitter and therefore are still basically regurgitating all the same stuff that you see just on like mainstream television and everything. Mm -hmm. And one of the amazing things about Twitter is of course the accessibility of information and being able to speak to people on the ground and, and people sharing their work and everything and sharing histories that really go unshared. And so I would love to believe that a lot of people are coming to understand the issue with the self-mythology of Portland and how it sort of, and how it sort of makes what's happening right now in Portland for those of us who are like, okay, but you haven't dealt with what you did to us. It kind of makes it where, okay, are you just going to now shift and pretend like you're the site of the revolution um, Mm. and not deal with the fact that even that is sort of becoming like a Portland trait. It's like Portland standing up to fascism and stuff. And I'm like, okay, please remember what this was supposed to be about. Please don't make this just another sort of like notch Mm -hmm. on your hipster belt and like actually Mm -hmm. deal with who this is supposed to, like who is actually in constant and historic danger and how how it has been contributed to in Portland. So it, it makes you wary even of what appears to be progress because you're like, right, but there's so much unfinished business there <laughs> like mm-hmm. right that's a lot yeah that reminds me of that uh the white liberalism type thing of the miss fish um yes. history teacher thing yes. where everyone saw her as kind of like the cool teacher but then when she was teaching her lesson it was very like all lives matter and and really right harmful terminology there let's all use our siren voices that we don't all get consequences for like um she was a really important character to me number one because I was being an IB kid myself and having a lot of um teachers that you would assume or or sort of self-identify as liberal and realizing that if you're a white kid in that class they seem super edgy but if you're a black kid in that class Mm -hmm. they do not Mm -hmm. um so and the problem being people are so quick to be like, this is how progressive this person is. And I'm like, did you ask us? Or are you telling us? Right. Like, why mm-hmm. are you always trying to inform me of how well this person's doing and how much credit this person should get? And you have literally yet to ask me, how am I experiencing this? It, how do, what am I hearing? What are the problems I'm seeing? Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's a problem. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll kind of touch in more detail about some of those topics that you went into. Um, but to kind of set the scene, because I think it's really interesting how Effie's character particularly spends a lot of time at like a Renaissance fair. And so right. I wanted to hear a little bit more about what kind of inspired you to set her character at a fair. And did you do any special research for that? Or, or what intrigued you to kind of like have her become part of that community so I um it's funny because it's sort of like a like a past offense for me and I know people are hoping for like this really happy story of why I said it there um one of the things is that my sister Jennifer actually had a lot to do with the initial sort of like diagram of this character because I had initially hoped that we were going to co-write this um and then I ended up writing it but I still very much sort of like take inspiration from her on Effie's character but specifically um a, a thing that was super duper important to me was that when I was a kid on the west coast I was obsessed with Bryn Fair. like I wanted to go I wanted to cosplay I wanted to you know I was just 
it was very much my jam. Um, and I literally never went. And mm. if I look back on why I didn't go, it was because I was very aware that it was not for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very much the thing, you know, and I deal with that a lot in the book also of like, the West Coast is like this wonderful oasis where everything is super good because we're not the South. Um, and I'm like, mm, no, that's not the truth. Um, so for me, it was like a lot of unspoken but extremely well articulated boundaries and like very, very, very clearly people would let you know that like, it's weird that you like this. It's weird that you want to be here. You, this isn't free, but, but would you historically be here? And I'm like, I'm sorry, that guy's Mm. pretending to be a dragon. What are you, what are we talking about? Um, also you guys all have your teeth, but fine. Um, (laughs) so I really looking back, that's something that really pisses me off. Like it, it really, really upsets me that I had an interest that was that constant and like that deep. And that I was very clearly told, like, this is not for you. Um, so a part of it is she's not, she's not a part of, or she's not like a participant in Red Fair. Like, she's legit foundational in Red Fair. Her mother is foundational in Red Fair. Um, so I was very much making it where this is part of her DNA, because it would be unrealistic to pretend that she wouldn't be sometimes treated still like this isn't for you Mm. but it was very much a situation where you can say whatever you want babe but like I I run this like this is mine um which is of course how I feel about the country in general is like it's super cute when people try to pretend like this isn't my shit um so very much um I wanted her to have an irrevocable place in it um and so that so that for her, it's a microaggression, which that does, that's not good, unfortunately, but in terms of like the damage and the trauma, we are so accustomed, especially as black girls, we are so accustomed to death by a million cuts. We are so mm-hmm. accustomed to just daily and constant and nonstop microaggressions that some days at least it would be like water off the duck's back. If I made it the way it was for me, it's like an aggressive thing. It's, it's not a microaggression. It's literally like a, I sense that I'm not safe, so I can't be here. Um, so I basically, I just wanted to sort of give myself something I always wanted. And so I didn't do literally any research, number one, because I mean, I was pretty much always looking into it when I was a kid, but also because I was like, since you didn't let me in, I'm going to build it however I want to build it. Um, yeah, I'm going to make it however I want to make it. People have asked me, like, are there really, like, fan sites and, like, forums? And I'm like, uh, could be. I don't know. I'm sure there are. <laughs> I'm like, why not? Why, <laughs> why not? Yeah. There should be. There's forums for everything. Um, so it's like, I, I literally don't care. You can't fact check me because this is what I said happens. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I wanted to ask the question, actually, because it was so, like, well-sketched and real, and I don't really have a personal relationship with Renaissance Fair, so I was like is this how it is? I feel like she's the expert here. So it just felt so, so like the whole book really felt like, oh, naturally there are sirens in Portland. Like, I just believe that. Of course there are. This is just, no, I'm like, I'm going to start a Ren Fair and it's going to be like this and you guys are invited. So, um, so that way we can say to people like, like, yeah, this is, uh, this is what Ren Fair is like. Yes. Yeah. I loved all of the descriptions of the Renaissance Fair. It was like, not like what you see potentially Renaissance Fairs are in like the media. 
right. you know, in movies and stuff. It was something that was like extremely magical and right. it really made Effie's character like even more uh, interesting and fun to read. Mm-hmm. I really love how much, because of the fact that I think people always feel like they sort of have to choose um, something that was happening early on. And sometimes you'll even see it in like the, in the book advertisement or something, people will set it up as though it's just a book about Tavia. Um, and they'll say mm-hmm. she has a sister friend Effie, but in the description of the plot, it'll like just be about Tavia. And what I love is how many people really, really uh, talk to me about Effie because I'm like, Effie is yeah. dope. Like I love her so much. Yeah. She is so great. Um, I love that she has just like a very, it's not like a secret sardonic sort of like rye side. It's simply not everybody gets to experience it. And it's something that like specifically Tavia because of their intimacy gets to experience that she's like hella funny, like hella witty. Um, you can hear all my, all my Northern California hellas coming out right now. Um, <laughs> But like, I love that about, I I love that through their relationship, you really get to see who Effie actually is. Um, And I really like when readers give her her space and like, yeah, she is the, she's the other main character. She's not like, she's not a side character. She is a protagonist. Definitely. So you've written both adult and YA fiction and so much more as well. Um, How did your process or approach differ between those two audiences and genres? Um, I think that my approach, so I will know, you know, once I figure out, once I know what could, what usually happens to me is like the concept comes first. Well, it's always the concept comes first and then a character. Um, in this case, I guess it happened exactly at the same time because the, it came to me because of the line, my voice is power. And so I knew the concept and the character were the same in terms of Tavia and, and black girls being sirens and what their predicament must be. Um, so I, it's always like, concept and very closely followed by uh, character and then and then I'll start to see where story goes and sometimes the way that story goes will let me know you know what genre it is is this really more speculative literary in terms of like are we going to be really closely following am I going to really be able to just like completely revel in language and and just like characterization like I did for Mem or is this something where it's going to really sort of follow um, plot conventions uh, for genre and so um, this was very clearly like this is contemporary fantasy there's there's a there's a thrust, you know, and there's a um, sort of rising action and all that kind of stuff and some sort of mystery and, um, you know, and so timing matters and all that kind of stuff. But also when I realize whether or not I'm going to be explicit or not, basically, because I'm not explicit for adults. Um, if you read Mem, you know, it's I, I feel like a lot of times those sorts of books are quite polarizing because people are either like, I don't know what you're saying or it's like oh my gosh this is I love what you're saying uh, because I'm not going to spoon feed it to you like you know I, mm-hmm. I don't feel like for for me even when I say something is an escape nothing is an escape from my brain I don't understand that as a concept so like um, I don't I don't see the draw in in critically disengaging so um, and I, and I don't enjoy that for my own reading. So I very much am always, my brain is always going and I, I want to invite the reader to join me in this process mm-hmm. versus let me tell you, you know, let me give you a roadmap of exactly what's happening, why, and what the subtext is and all that kind of stuff. If I'm writing specifically to black girls, because that's who I'm writing to when I write YA, mm-hmm. 
I'm going to, for their benefit, be more explicit. I'm trying to not only say I understand and I see what it is you go through, I'm also trying to give you the language to speak about your own experience and how it might differ from what I'm showing and all that kind of stuff. So I'm literally... I'm literally wanting to give something to that target audience. That to me isn't a difference in the, in the writing process. It's a difference in what I will allow on the page because I've literally had, you know, editors be like, can you explain this? And if it's not YA, I'm like, no, um, mm. if it, <laughs> if it is YA and it serves the purpose of the target audience, then yes. Um, but for instance, there are still things in, in, in um, A Song Below Water because my, and this is more an indictment of society, which I feel like all literature should be anyway, but mm. um, because of who my target audience is and because of the fact that they are not centered and they are not represented and they are not treated um, with dignity and, you know, loved out loud, there is a lot of intercultural conversation happening in this book that I'm not really concerned with whether everyone else sees all of it um and to try to shift it to make sure everybody does would be to tell those black girls this isn't actually for you this mm -hmm. is for them too and that is like you don't need more of that we don't need more of that so i remember you know being asked to like oh well can you explain i've, I've seen people literally say i wish there had been footnotes you know when she talked about stuff and I'm, i was like girl are you serious that's really dumb <laughs> just, the, the like, just read the book just the audacity though of being like well, I don't understand exactly what these two black girls are talking about or why they're answering their friend this way. So mm. I want you to, I want you to pause the story and talk directly to me. And mm -mm. I'm like, no, I know you do because yeah. you're raised yeah. to expect that. But um, no. So, um, so yeah, the difference for me is definitely how explicit, how explicit I'm willing to be. But like I said, still always in service of who my target audience is. Right. I'm not going to be explicit for the whole world. Right. I think that comes across very clear. I mean, obviously we're, we're white women and we read your book, but it, it definitely was written, you could tell like as a love letter to like the black woman yep. and the black girl. Right. And, and I think that that's part of what makes it so special and, and is able that's to encapsulate so many things. Universal. That's what makes it so universal. Like people yeah. act like specificity takes away from universality which is really funny because what you guys have always been calling universal is stuff that's directed toward white people yeah. so that's quite specific too right yeah. for some reason we're like oh that's universal no if, if that's universal then this is universal mm -hmm. like if i'm being specific i am giving an invitation even though it's not directed to somebody i'll say it's for everybody it's yeah, to yeah. like you said, the love letter to black girls it's for everybody because this is an intimacy you have probably never been privy to. Mm -hmm. This is the way we talk amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. This is the way that we as black women show sisterhood to black women. Um, and so even in the character of Naima, which is who is constantly misunderstood, which is the whole reason I wrote her book, which is the next book. <laughs> I want to ask about that at the end. Cause I, I have, yes, yes. I want to know some more. <laughs> yes. I want to, I'm, and I'm always like, Hey, I'm, I want everybody to know, don't feel bad. I'm indicting everybody because the way that people have responded yeah. to her, like, is not unexpected, but I still can't believe, I still really can't believe it. Cause I'm like, you know, we can rehabilitate literal serial killers, mm. uh, like 
a white guy can literally do anything and we'll be like, oh my God, sploosh. Um, but you have a teenage black girl in a book about teenagers where the antagonist is clearly white supremacy, is clearly like environmental and people are still like, I hate Naima, I wish she died. And I'm like, oh yeah. my God, she's That's 16. What are, what are you talking about? She's 16. What did she, like, yeah. tell me please, what did she do to get you that frothing upset? And like how reading a book about the demonization of black girls, did you come to feel that strongly against her and think I was going to be cool with that? So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was the whole reason that I was like, oh, by the way, I know I said I don't write sequels and it's not a sequel technically, but like, I know I said I don't write the same thing twice, but the next book is a Naima book uh, because this is, uh, I can't, this is not okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm actually very, very excited about that. But I, but I, what I was trying to get at is that I feel like when you are that specific, particularly for an underrepresented and particularly in a society that has horribly overrepresented a particular demographic, you are, you are offering them something that they will not ever otherwise be privy to, like that they will never otherwise experience. And that in itself is a gifting. And I think for a lot of the white readers who have been really effusive in reaching out and talking about what, what they love about the book, that matters to me too, because it's like, you don't realize that a lack of representation harms you. Overrepresentation mm -hmm. harms you. Like it, it, there's a literal cultural incompetency that, that you're, you know, you're socialized to have and it's not to your benefit. So it, it really does matter not that these books just exist for as as mirrors for us but as windows for people who didn't realize they don't know a lot like they don't understand people who are literally walking next to them in their country their own country people like they do not get them they do not understand them and how big of a problem that is yeah i think now that you're talking about your sociology and psychology and how people aren't like raised in a vacuum. I feel like a lot of books are written almost like in a vacuum, but yeah. yours is, is encompassing a lot of things. And I think that has a lot to do with kind of like the world building and, and how you chose to, to tell that mythology. So I was a little curious about kind of the, the mythical creatures that you decided to include in this cast of characters, so like sprites mm -hmm. and locos and sirens and gargoyles. I had never met, you know, all of these in, in one type of mythos. So, so how did you decide this, those creatures were going to be the, the best type of fantasy creatures, you know, for this story? Well, so to be very honest, of course, the siren is the main, you know, that's the entry point. And so that is the one that I would say before, this is why I, I always say like, sociology there's no like starting and ending point uh like there is with with uh, or there can attempt to be or theoretically can be with psychology so i would say okay i didn't sit down and say these are good i thought about this before casting them and here's why they would be good it's that the story writes itself the mythology weaves itself as you're doing it um and it's almost so so i couldn't say that they're better suited than any other it just means that once they are there you build through them um, this subtext and this identity and stuff. So um, sirens were always going to be a part of it. Um, what Effie turns out to be was always going to be a part of it because I knew that that's what she was before I started writing. That was really cool. Um, I did it. I, I was like, plot twist. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. I was, you know, my thing with that, and I so wish this is, this is the most irritating thing about talking about a song below water is I can't actually talk about Effie because I can't, Yeah. I can't spoil that. And there's a really important reason why it matters that that's what she is. Um, and it is very connected to Tavia being a siren um, or what it means, why I, ch- you know, why it matters mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that sirens are only black women. So it, bugs me that I can't talk about that but anyway um (laughs) so those two were the ones that like I knew ahead of time and I was like yeah this this what I'm trying to say about the people who are cast in this way is a subtext that you should be able to like correlate with what you know of their of their um, sort of accepted mythos. So I knew also that I wanted to decentralize Europe in fantasy. So I knew that the other, if there is a siren uh, cast and they are known, but also despised, that to me means that there are other people who are known that are beloved because it's not the problem that you are something, it's the problem that you're the wrong something. Mm, mm -hmm. So, um, so I decided that, of course, that there was somebody at the sort of top of the food chain, and I knew that I was not, that it could not be anything that had what people will assume are um, European origins, because most of the things that we credit to Europe, of course, are not actually European in origin in the first place. Um, mm. But that's the sort of accepted history of it. Um, even things like mermaids and stuff. I'm like, right? No, so Mami Wacha doesn't exist. Sure, um, right? Yeah. We'll just pretend. We'll just pretend that the, that this has always been like white girls under the water. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I wanted to choose something that was from the continent, but also I wanted to speak to the fact that I am a member of the diaspora. So I am not from the continent. I am Black American. I have had a very traumatic divorce from that part of my lineage because of enslavement. I have something like a telephone effect in terms of what I know or think I know about any particular place in um, on the continent. So I chose what should be called Boloco, um, if you, when you pluralize it, and it's a Central African. The other thing is I didn't want to keep, anytime we do Africans, like, okay, West African. I'm like, you, you know that it's a huge continent, right? Um, so, <laughs> so I specifically wanted something from Central Africa, and um, I wanted to sort of make it really clear for people who would be familiar to make it really clear that this is not, I'm not attempting to tell your story. I'm telling a diaspora story. So um, I'm not trying, if you try to fact check this, you will immediately come up against like, Oh, this is not how they're presented. Mm -hmm. Of course it isn't because I'm, I'm a black American from the West coast. Okay. It's a copy of a copy of a copy by the time I hear things. And yes, I know what the original story is, but the point in that subtext is is really specifically for me. It's not really something that I expected readers to be like, Oh, this is a statement on the diaspora. Um, But I, but I wanted that for myself because it's a very important aspect of being a black American on the West coast. You, you don't, if you don't have ties to the South, um, it's almost like people pretend that you have no narrative, like um, like you're not a part of any narrative. They will try to attach you to the South or the Great Migration, and if they can't find that, then it's like, well, you're an alien. I'm like, no, there's a lot of us, actually. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of us on the West Coast. You just leave us out of, like, every story. 
Um, so I intentionally, again, sort of mythologized and, and changed w- the way that I was going to represent them. And despite the fact that they are still um, Black in origin, I did want to demonstrate the mythology of mythology, basically, which is that you can be rehabilitated if you're the right person. And so they have this mythos that they're like these cannibalistic ancestor spirits. Um, And because in this world, you know, the real affront of being a siren and having that kind of power in your voice is that only black women can have it, which is really to say black, to say white people can't have it. And that's what always, that's what white supremacy um, hates because it is by nature a sort of a conquesting form of identity. It's not a real heritage. It's not a real, it doesn't have a country of origin or anything. It's literally just a power conglomerate. So mm-hmm. if it's denied something, it's, its whole role is to deny someone else something. Right. So if it is denied something, that thing must be stopped. Like that thing must be destroyed. So the easiest way to rehabilitate a loco, which should be way more worrisome to people, <laughs> Um, is to is to make it accessible to white people. So literally anybody can be born a, a loco. There's no, there is an ancestral aspect of it, which is that you as a person supposedly got this from through your ancestors, but it's not specific to any particular ancestors. Like anyone from anywhere can can sort of spawn as a as an aloco. Um, so those two were quite specific, but then I was like, okay, well, I also want somebody who's just sort of a dick and just has like no purpose really in what they do. So that was Sprites. Um, <laughs> and um, I wanted some things that weren't humanoid, like some things that clearly it's like, you're not going to have a kid, you know, and then your kid is going to turn into a Sprite as far as we know. So like, um, so I wanted them to sort of be, ethereal and um and then i wanted to have some people who had gone extinct like oracles um and then some people who had gone reclusive like go um sorry giants right because there's no reason for giants obviously there's no sort of like hard feelings but it's more of um as somebody with an invisible disability it was more like an accessibility statement Mm -hmm. where they literally, we just went ahead and built a world that doesn't accommodate them. So you pretty much, again, just sort of quietly told them, you're not welcome. Um, this world isn't for you. So there's no real, we're not given any history that tells us that, that giants were disliked or, or despised or anything. But if you build a world that doesn't accommodate somebody and only accommodates people like you, that's what you're telling them. Um, so, so they have, you know, become reclusive and who knows where they, you know, where they actually live or where they are. Um, and then of course, mermaids and all that kind of stuff. So those were just more like, if there's a world where fantastical creatures exist, I assume there would be a variety of them, just like there's a variety of us. So some of them had, you know, in, from the very beginning had like deeper reason and meaning. And then some of them was just like, nope, this guy's just a dick. (laughs) I just, I like, I like sprites. So. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Um, So you kind of answered this a little bit, but can you talk about why it was important to build in the power structure of racism that exists in the real world um, into a magical fantasy world, as opposed to writing a book that just doesn't include the magical fantasy kind of aspect? 
Well, yeah, because that makes it kind of sound like I started with fantasy and then was like, oh, I'm going to sprinkle in racism. Um, No, it's more like as it's a very common and very um, potent tool used by a lot of Black Americans, specifically um, SFF writers, um, to talk about the real world. It is, you would... (laughs) you'd be surprised how much pushback you get talking about reality to people who don't want to hear about reality. Let's take the 1619 project right now. Okay. So we're talking about actual history and you have people saying they're attacking American history. How can I be attacking American history by telling you American history? Mm -hmm. What? What? Like, right. So you're, you know, people are constantly like, Oh, why did, why don't you just tell a contemporary story? I'm like, well, have you been listening? to those have you been listening to those contemporary stories Mm -hmm. did did you pick those up have you read those um so for me the entry point for outsiders is the fantastical aspect of it and the thing is i'm very unsubtle it's not like i'm trying to hide what i'm talking about but for me um for the people i'm actually talking to and for the for the for my actual target audience i've said this repeatedly Science fiction and fantasy allows me to elevate a truth that people are pretending they don't see. And it also allows me to alleviate the burden that comes with knowing this is true for the black Mm -hmm. reader. Um, I know this is true. I don't want to read me personally. I don't want to read a whole bunch of contemporary books where I see a bunch of police brutality because I know that that's real. That makes me, that is another, for me, that feels like more trauma. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's not true in my book. It's that there is a glamour between you and it, like a psychic distance between me and it that allows the Black reader to identify that, yes, what you're saying is something I experience and I feel seen by it, but I also don't feel it. I don't feel like I'm experiencing it in this moment. Um, It's just enough. It's, it's It's like a half step away and that makes a huge difference when this is something that you actually live. Um, obviously, I am one person because there are plenty of people who write the contemporary, who read the contemporary. My son is one of them. He really gorged on it a couple of years ago, and I feel like he really, really needed that, and I would never try to take that away from people, but I think that it is really strange when people act like that doesn't cost the author and it doesn't cost the reader. Um, but also, people want to people are illiterate people are culturally illiterate Mm -hmm. and so i'm like okay you seem to understand you know if you need to bleep this fucking mermaids so here's some mermaids okay here's some here's some sirens and here's a giant and here's a gargoyle can you understand now like what i'm trying to say (laughs) so it literally like i mean it's really sad but the thing that that um a lot of the movies that we do see things like bright and things that have sort of this like allegorical bigotry in it where they completely removed real world um marginalized people in order supposedly to teach people about bigotry and i'm like Mm -hmm. that's such that's so dehumanizing i'm right here Mm -hmm. it literally happens Mm -hmm. to me why would you need to remove me to care that this is happening and when then do you apply those lessons back to me you don't so for me it's like yes i want to use the fantastical aspect to elevate and to alleviate but i also will never divorce it from the people who actually experience it because you don't get to pretend that this is something that could happen to anybody it's not happening to anybody enslavement was not a lottery jim crow was not a lottery um you know any of the number of things that the the 
medical racism that we see, the environmental racism that we see, it's not a lottery, it's directed specifically at people, specifically at black people. And I'm not going to allow people to like erase that so that we can get the message. You're not gonna get the message if you're not if you're not willing to look at who is suffering from it. Right. Yeah, and I think incorporating all those elements actually makes like it's why I can I've basically convinced myself there are sirens in Portland. Like (laughs) I think (laughs) you know, like it does feel part of our (laughs) real world. Like I just I'm convinced because because yeah sirens what you see happening to sirens is not anything that has not happened to black women on the internet Mm -hmm. that's literally where the book came from um was watching someone be doxxed and completely abused and then you know after this book came out having it happen to me so like you know it's the reason it's believable this fantastical thing is believable is because it's the truth yeah Mm. yeah um okay so i i know we kind of talked about uh, Tavia and Effie's special sister friendship. Um, mm-hmm. And we were wondering, because we, we read the authors know a little bit, and we wanted to hear more about kind of what inspired this relationship for you between the, the two characters. Yeah, so obviously I have um, like biological sisters, and um, and I also have sister friends, and that's just something that I don't know. You know, you know one of the reasons that certain things are not representation. Let's say you have like a TV show and there's like, there's like three white girls and then there's like an Asian girl and then there's a black girl and everybody's like, yay, representation. I'm like, that's not representation. Um, Because that black girl has been completely plucked out of her community, Mm. completely plucked out of her world and has been placed in a situation where she would 100% of the time have to be code switching. Right. She's place somewhere where 100% of the time she is their entry point to blackness period. Um, That is a huge burden. You will never know that person as well as you think you do um, because she is isolated. She's an island. So for me, um, being a black woman is about being with black women. And my sisterhood, not just with my biological sisters but with all of the black women in my life is really life-saving like it literally is the difference between sanity it's it's sometimes it's literally just the dis- difference between being alive and not being because the people who show up for black women are black women mm-hmm. and the people who protect black women are black women so for me it was like this is a this is a type of intimacy that when people when when the book was first coming out people kept saying the importance of sisterhood and i and i kept being like especially for my team i was constantly sending them to correct stuff cuz i was like Mm-mm, no 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 i'm talking about black sisterhood mm-hmm. i i realize that people hate when things are not about them but i'm talking specifically about black sisterhood it is extremely specific it deserves to be on a pedestal deserves to be loved in public and to be loved out loud because it is life. Like it is literally sanity. It's literally safety. It's literally, and again, that's never to like, to be, and this should go without saying, but it's never to be like, oh, and it's completely perfect and nobody ever has ingested any sort of anti-blackness or misogynoir that, that then becomes toxic within our own communities. Nobody is saying that. That's a ridiculous thing for me to have to say. I realize I do have to say it because it's the first thing people will say back, but like, um, and that's the story of part of the story of Naima as well, but again, we're not born in, we're not born in vacuums. So if you can find you know, 
to just name drop, Candace Owens exists because society is designed to produce Candace Owens. So Mm -hmm. this is the natural response. This is the intended outcome of anti-blackness and misogynoir and white supremacy is to create docile bodies who would rather police themselves and rather find fault in themselves than in the actual oppressor. So even those people are not the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, of course that exists. That just like, like I said, sociologically that goes without saying, obviously, if you have a system grinding against against people somebody's going to figure out you know what the road of least resistance is to just get in line with their thinking um so of course those people exist but overwhelmingly if i do not have if i do not have black women in my life i mean i can't even really think of that because that's like an impossibility but like if i if i don't i am never at rest Mm -hmm. i'm never at home there's nobody because you're living at the intersection of these marginalizations and white women want you to just be a woman and black men want you to just be black and you're both somebody needs to be with you in that space that's both somebody needs to see that people are constantly trying to pit parts of your identity against each other somebody needs to see that people are constantly trying to force you to choose one and and you are always coming under fire for loyalty and where do you know where does your loyalty lie and everything and at the same time none of these communities are showing up for you so like to not be in relationship with black women to me, I would, I would starve to death. Like there's where, where are you going for rest beloved? Like, where are you, mm-hmm. where, where are you being refilled? Um, and it's, it's very, very particular to that kind of relationship. So I wanted, I wanted the paramount love relationship of the book to be them because that's my, that's my actual experience. Um, and I think that's the experience for a lot of black women is if you don't see that relationship, if you don't know that relationship, you don't really know me very well. Mm. So in a way, this book is very much like actually inviting people to know us very well, because there is no other lens through which you would see us this clearly. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that in the book that kind of was... Um, trying maybe trying to break up the the sister friendship or getting getting in the way I should say was actually the parents so can you talk a little bit about the choice to have that kind of you know in not in the way but you know well they if you again there's no way to have this conversation without spoiling so the easy answer is the parents think that they are bringing them together um their their but their attempt to bring them together does have ulterior motives mm-hmm. um so the reason it's super duper important for you to see this is because respectability politics just like i just was talking about with you know docile bodies and you know the marginalized beginning to identify themselves as being the problem instead of white supremacy because you are something i can control and so if you can behave differently then maybe all this will change and of course that's ridiculous but it's a, again it's a very understandable line of logic for something that is illogical um a lot of black children suffer that um a lot of 
a lot of black children are experience a lot more harshness from places that other people experience um, sort of a coddling love. And I'm not saying I want to trade places because I think there's a huge problem with coddling, obviously. Um, there are people who are completely unprepared for anything. We have a whole like legal defense called affluenza because I just mm. had life too easy. So how could I understand consequences? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you'll understand them now. Um, so <sighs> my thing is, this is something that is unique to specifically Black Americans, where even the people who love you get the message that to protect you, I have to sort of hurt you before someone else mm-hmm. can hurt you because I will not hurt you too much. And if they, you know, and that's why I think you hear people talking about like, oh, well, I got spanked as a kid and I'm fine. And, and people almost like defending what you can really observably see is like abusive behavior. But the reason is because, okay, if you're going to lynch my kid and I'm just going to, you know, quote unquote, spank my kid to keep him from doing whatever it is that you don't want him to do, I would rather that. Nobody else has this like life or death context Mm -hmm. (laughs) to disappointing their kids. (laughs) So it can look like, oh my gosh, this is so like extreme and and respect is such a big deal in in the black community and in black families and stuff. And, And why is that? And it's like, again, it's not life or death for anybody else. You don't have like a whole history of lynching publicly in this country that just went completely un, you know, dealt with like, it would nobody got in trouble for that kind of stuff right so that we get this we get this uh message constantly the message we're supposed to get which is that we can do whatever we want to you at any time and there's nothing that is going to happen to us from it so of course a lot of that it just becomes ingested like okay i've got to be hyper vigilant i've got to be hyper disciplinary and i've got to be but what that does is it 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 maximizes the trauma Mm -hmm. for black kids you you lose out on this time of innocence you lose out on um and this isn't across the board i'm ta- i'm trying to talk about a specific phenomena that i that i really want to see eradicated so i'm not trying to give people the impression like this is what it's like to be a black kid but this is common this is common and so i want i want parents to also understand if you do this even if you're thinking that you're protecting your child, you have to understand you become an unsafe place for me. Like, I don't, that means I don't have any place to rest. I don't have any place that's safe. I don't have any place that's home. Um, and that's what, that's what you see with Tavia and her father is he is so wrapped up in, in his fear that he projects it onto her as just this constant chastisement, this constant, um, you know, disapproval and and really fails to see that she is the true victim in all of this so why would you want to put this on her like you feel out of control with the world because you understand even as a grown black man that you can be killed at any time you know and and not very much is going to come of it but that doesn't mean we have to decide that our children are precious period like i have to decide that i'm going to tell my child he is who he actually is. I'm not going to try to beat white supremacy to the punch. I'm, I'm going to, I'm go, you know, so my relationship with, with my son is very much like, and my parents were very like, um, I think people would, would have considered them quite verbose in just like the constant, constantly singing your praises, constantly saying, I love you. This I thought was totally normal until 
I was around other people and my parents and particularly as like a teenager and people were like, oh my God, stop. Like, why are you guys always hugging or kissing or something? Um, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, I feel sorry for you because this is great. Um, but so, so I have that same sort of relationship with my son and it's very, very difficult because he's growing up in a time that it's like the pendulum has swung back more toward what my father experienced growing up being born in the 40s um, where I am more physically afraid for my son than I think probably my parents were when I was his age but still intentionally and just defiantly choosing I'm going to treat him like the treasure he is period I'm going to adore him I'm going to just constantly be pouring love on him um, because I don't trust other people to do it and it shouldn't be up to them. Um, so I wanted to show that because I really want people to think about the way that we internalize um, generational trauma and the way that we start living out things that are, are just aggressions in our own home, how we let it get inside. And, and a lot of times it's, it's because of fear, but that the, the, out, the, the outcome is the same. The impact is the same. Going off of that, I, I was wondering kind of um, if you feel like addressing some of this trauma, because I think both, both Tavia and Effie go through quite a lot, whether that's the big trauma of the park or the small traumas like microaggressions on a daily basis. Do you feel like having these conversations in a book that's geared towards a younger audience is potentially therapeutic and giving your target audience kind of the tools to deal with um, these, these things in their life. Yeah. I think that it also gives people, again, when you give somebody language, because a lot of us, and even those of us, like, you know, I feel like I was like an outlier because I just came out of the womb talking like a theorist, but like for most people, that's not the case. And so you go through periods of your life. It's not that you don't know that this isn't okay. It's not that you don't know something's wrong, but you don't know you're being gaslit all the time. You're being treated like it's not happening and you don't know how to say what is happening. Um, and so I think it's really important to demonstrate all the little, because, you know, that's what one of the things that actually white readers have said a lot is like, this is constant. Like somebody is always mm -hmm. saying something. It's like, okay, if you say something quote unquote well-meaning, which I hate that phrase, because why do you get credit for whatever mm -hmm. anyway so like yeah. if you say something not knowing you know why it would be offensive which again means you've gotten to live your whole life without really empathizing and like being aware of other people's predicaments um mm -hmm. you might think well what are you getting so upset for i just said such and such okay well if you're the 17th cut i got today why am i supposed to take that in good humor like why is it up to me to treat each of these as though they're these isolated incidents when this is just constantly happening. This is a, yeah. you know, we're all here at school and for you, you're just at school. Mm -hmm. But for me, I've got to get past my teacher's implicit bias. I've got to get, you know what I mean? Like I've, I've got to get past just open prejudices. I've got to get past assumptions about, you know, my intelligence or my placement or my whatever. I've got to get over people um, just sort of like the grownification of black girls, which is to treat me like I'm a grown woman and treat, you know, a white girl the same age like she's a child. Um, so it's really important that people understand this is why representation matters so, so much. Someone needs to understand the time that you said it to me was not the first time it was said to me. 
And that's trauma that I have to keep experiencing. So explain to me why I'm supposed to spare your feelings and just, and just suffer this on my own in silence every day. So, um, somebody specifically when the two Jennifers and altruism, um, are seeing that she's watching this hair video and one of them's like, you have to watch a video to learn to do your hair. Right. And she's yeah. like, okay, but every commercial you've ever seen is a white girl hair tutorial. Mm-hmm. Like every movie you've ever seen is a white girl hair tutorial. Like you're getting all of this all of the time. And be, so to be treated like, oh, you want to be like catered to, babe, you don't even see it. It's like your entire existence is the air you breathe. It's like right. the water you're swimming in. It's constant. You are constantly, and number one, all of these products are designed for your hair. Mm -hmm. So if you are allowed to like ignore and erase all of that, of course it looks like, well, you're making a big deal about something. No, you've literally put me in a world designed for you and then look at me weird when I'm, you know, so it's like, so people were like, I had no idea what that, what asking someone about their hair could feel like to them. And I'm like, yeah, that's a problem because they're not fun, breezy conversations for us. So I have a question about. ASL. Um, You you have that as an important communication tool between um, the sisters. Um, What made you want to include that? So there's a couple of things. Number one, it just logically made sense with uh, Effie being a mermaid um, and a cosplay mermaid in the Renaissance fair in terms of just like thinking, how would you, how would you do a storyline if if one of you is underwater a lot of the time? Um, But also it is yet another thing I was quite obsessed with as a kid growing up. And the really frustrating thing was I kept meeting maybe one person every couple of years that I would be in school with who spoke ASL. And the reason they spoke it was because someone in their family, every single time it was someone in their immediate family, uh, was deaf or hard of hearing. And I was like, okay, where can I take this, these classes though? And it was like, oh, well, I take them through such and such because my sister is such and such. Or, and I was like, wait, so you're telling me there's like a whole swath of my country like community that I just can't communicate with (laughs) and like and nobody Mm -hmm. sees a problem with this and like nobody thinks that we should be remedying that the other thing is like I do have a child so when you have a small child and you get all these like you know all the videos and all the different stuff that the children watch and it's always like six different languages and all these different things ASL is always a part of that because of course it's like an easy way to teach your child to communicate with you and they want more food and all that different stuff and that's usually when you use it it's Mm -hmm. like for a child to say please and more and thank you and mama and all that kind of stuff before they really are speaking uh consistently so i was like so we see the value of it for a toddler right and and then once again Mm -hmm. are just like nope don't need this so i always wanted to take it as my second language and i wasn't able to um Mm. and that just is wild to me. Like that's ridiculous because a accessibility again to a whole people group that I am cut off from and B it's also a language. Like it's also just a beautiful language. Why yeah. can't I learn it in school? Like any other of the, let's say two languages that, that are widely taught. Um, it yeah. just, it just felt like 
this makes no sense. This, if, if community matters, this makes no sense. Um, I also, I wanted them to come at it from different, from different positions because one of them is based on trauma and I didn't want both of their entry points to this language that I think should be normalized and taught you know to literally I think every child should be learning ASL in school just when you learn English I just think you should um I, I didn't want both of them to sort of be passing because for Tavia it is literally it's a literally a statement about passing as a black American um and passing as white which which you know um many black families have in their in their family history um so it's you know she specifically is using it to pass but um i wanted effie to be using it because it's beautiful because it's desirable because why would you not want to know that it's crazy to me that it isn't something that more people know because we're expecting you know people to learn how to read lips or you know right yes like you cannot physically hear right so adapt yeah. to me when I'm talking yes. to you. It's insane. So, so here, do some more labor. Um, yeah. or, or just accept that we're just going to cut you out of society. Right. So crazy. So the voices of Tavia and Effie feel so authentic to the high school aged person. Um, how did you capture the psychology of a high school girl in, in such a way and have both girls feel so different and have such different voices? I don't know if I could say, because usually those kind of questions, it's like people sort of want like a, here's what I did. I don't know, but I am a very, I am a, I'm an observer. I'm a cultural historian and I, um, and a journaler, you know, since I've, I've every journal I ever kept since I was seven um, or I ever wrote since I was seven. So I, and I, I have a sensory thing about accents as well my my the thing that I hate the most is like when somebody fakes an accent um because I because I'm gonna hear it and it's gonna and it's gonna be like I can't stop hearing it and the same sort of thing happens to me I think I guess I think of um uh pentameter and and um lyricism and and waves of speaking sort of the same way and you know how you can hear something and it's like hello fellow children and you're like no that's (laughs) (laughs) not that's not right. how kids talk. <laughs> kids these days. Yeah. The teens on TikTok. <laughs> like the TikTok, the Twitter. It's like they'll, they're all, there will always be some sort of tell that you're like, that's, this is inaccurate. <laughs> so yeah. um, I think that A, I probably listen differently than other people. I don't know how else to say this. Um, also, we're not teenagers. So, you, you know, it could be that it's not right. we're, we're also reading it as adults <laughs> right, and being like right. that is a teenager, a teenager. <laughs> what a teen <laughs> no, if, I, if i didn't hear it from teens it wouldn't mean very much i'll be really honest or you know who does that is like movies in movies when you have that like abigail breslin character who has like full-on just like yes yeah really precocious conversations with the adult character I, and you're like i've never met a child I that's like i absolutely hate it if teens were like they are in movies i would have never had a child like i'd have been like never absolutely ever <laughs> because they're basically like how can we put like a snarky 46 year old in the body <laughs> and somebody have just like i'm like so when does this child have all this time to have done this like deep reading i can understand children <laughs> 
coming into new information and becoming really fixated on it and really convinced of its veracity, I can't see them fact checking it. I can't see them having looked for like peer reviewed studies of it. So like whenever they show a kid who like has a really, who has an interest and they're like, and did you know that it, that such and such, and it'll be stuff like no adult in the room knows about. I'm like, you realize I got to go yeah. to school too. Like, when did they do this like independent study? Like, please calm down. And the other thing is every kid doesn't have to be smart. I'm so sorry. Um, I just, I, <laughs> yeah, I hate true. the thing where it's like teenagers are snarky and smart and like just wildly funny. And I'm like, but that's the caricature. Like that's everybody can't be that. And they also don't need to be that. And they don't all have to be self-aware. And that was a big thing with having two black girl protagonists, especially in a world where we have so few black girl protagonists, period. Um, and wanting to make sure that, that you don't establish a type or that you're constantly sort of like resisting a type was that Tavia knows what she is. Tavia knows what she's dealing with. She has to, her survival depends on it. I didn't want to write two black girls because again, like I said, the grownification of black girls where then the reader is just getting this sort of like tacit um, approval in the idea that like black girls are really 36 year old women. Um, and that's not true. Mm. So, you know, Effie is like totally lost. Like she does not know what's happening to her. She doesn't know the best way to be a good sister to um, Tavia. She hears herself say problematic stuff that she knows is problematic because she's so close to, to Tavia. Like the very opening mm-hmm. when, when Tavia is trying to tell her, like they're saying that Rhoda was a siren and she's clearly having a very traumatic experience with it that has made it where she can't speak aloud and Effie's like is she like she because it's just she's a teenager like she's she loves this person desperately she cares about them and it only takes a second to realize like that is not the right question why would I say that but she's not she's not this witty like Alan Sorkin like character she's (laughs) She's a kid who also is going through something. So, you know, she doesn't always have the presence of mind to like do and say the right thing for someone or even like how she ends up going to the park with Isabella and then is immediately like, what the hell did I do this for? Like, this was obviously a bad decision. (laughs) But it was like, I felt I had endorphins because somebody that I like kind of, you know, think is cool was like, was cool to me and that's usually never happens except with Tavia so I had like a brain fart and now I'm in a situation that I really wish I wasn't in I just wanted to make I wanted to make sure that they were free to actually be teenagers and not just to make stupid decisions because they're reckless but make stupid decisions because my brain is still forming like I don't yeah I don't know what the best thing to do in this situation would be and adults have made it where they're not willing to give me information and the world is obviously hostile. So sometimes I'm just going to make the decision I think is best and then immediately realize that is not good. Um, you know, but it's, but I think it's real to, to a, to a kid who, who is quite isolated. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing for them was putting them at completely different points in their self identity journey and that just automatically sort of makes them quite different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think 
you bring up a good point and that's that's what I liked about their psychology was that they're kind of insecure and and like right. anxious and and worried about what people are thinking about them which was my main takeaway from like my brain forming years I was like is everybody looking yeah. at me um <laughs> and it, it's good that Tavia and and Effie are kind of like in different places with their identity um because yeah. Effie's a little bit I would say a little more nerdy a little more self-conscious yeah. um and I would say like especially when you're thinking about kind of like fantasy characters and, and you don't always see that, that girl that's kind of interrogating her self identity. And so Mm -hmm. we were wondering if you, you kind of set out to write this work with the intention of kind of like bringing more black women, especially kind of into the genre um, and, and kind of have, obviously we've been talking about how representation matters, but was it important to kind of like have someone like Effie so that people can look to and be like, she has so much power in her insecurity and like in her changing morphology kind of thing? Yeah, I think it was really important, number one, because it demonstrates, again, the life-saving um, value of the sisterhood that they have, mm-hmm. that because she has that, she can be uncertain. Yeah. Um, what it means when a black girl has support that she doesn't have to function like an adult she doesn't have to know exactly what she's supposed to do um or when she's being preyed upon or when you know like Mm -hmm. there's a great book that i actually just finished reading called grown it hasn't come out yet but it's by tiffany d jackson um and it's so 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 important it's specifically speaking about what i'm talking about about um, the sexualization and gratification of black girls and and then you know sort of blaming them for their own victimization despite the presence of a full-grown man being involved um, mm. and I really wanted I mean we've been doing science fiction and fantasy since you know before people really probably were even calling it science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. um, or just incorrectly calling everything Afrofuturism I don't know um, but so it's more bringing it into YA because for some reason you don't get to, you don't get to specifically see black American kids in science fiction and fantasy in YA for some reason like yeah. if, if they're going to give you space for it they need you to put it off on the continent they need you to be like oh this is you know, West African folklore or something. And I'm like, okay, again, we are real people and uh, we live, you know, our culture is exclusively from here. And I feel like people should stop being surprised since everybody's constantly mining our culture for things they can steal from it. It's very strange when then people act like they don't realize that we are a distinct people group with a distinct culture. Um, So I think it's really, really important to bring black American kids into science fiction and fantasy. because it's a it's an intentional exclusion that has been happening um and yeah and then i just like i said i want to i want to show full fully formed black girls i want to show black girls as people and not sidekicks and if you show them as real people and as soon as you show community i think it's a lot easier to do you will realize how different these very similar girls are yeah they were great i love them (laughs) I love them too. They're my favorite. <laughs> you mentioned early on about the sequel. I use air quotes. Of course, nobody can yes. hear me. I love use that. Air quotes. Number two. Everybody heard <laughs> those, those air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, can, is there anything more you can share about it outside of what you've already kind of talked about? So the title is A Chorus Rises, and it will be coming out next year. It is Naima's uh, POV. 
and it takes place it is it chronologically follows the book but it's not a sequel to the book um actually my my critique partner throughout the process was somebody who had never read a song below water which i really wanted um because i i do want it i want them to function as two standalones but you know just like everybody else's lives are a continuing story um so she if you know obviously what happens at the end of a song below water um it follows a year after that moment and basically how portland has changed um and changed its mythology once again um and how naima responds to that naima i would say if i if i had to say i i related to any character i've written the most it would be naima um she does not lack self-confidence she does not require approval she does not need you to understand something um so like she just you know and that makes her outside of having this this assigned privilege because white people so beloved a loco outside of being a loco those are all death knells for black girls like Mm. you are supposed to bleed on the page you're supposed to bleed where we can see it so that we feel good about giving you any love because you have to be broken first or you have to be you know there's I cannot tell you the number of teachers who told me that it would be really good when I sort of matured and developed humility wow um how dare they and if I look back I was never, listen, I had never been to the principal's office in my life. I'd never been to detention or anything. So what I started looking at was like, wait a minute, I'm clearly not demonstrating any sort of character traits or behavioral traits that are resulting in disruptiveness or resulting in me not being a top student or me getting in trouble or anything. But you still found a way to criticize it and write it off as like a poor trait and every other, you know, I was in primarily white spaces always in education, and all of these boys are going to be the next president. All of these mm. boys are, are all going to, you know, go to the top schools and everything. I'm like, what is the difference? Let's let's figure this out. Let's really dig into this. What's the difference between me knowing and and uh, arguing that here's why this grade needs to be adjusted according to your own, according to your own rubric? here's why I'm petitioning for this B minus or this B plus to be changed to an A minus based on your rubric. Um, and then being told, oh, that's a really, you know, you have to learn to, that's a really unattractive trait. And I don't think, I don't think that mm. you should have done that and blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I feel like this is really specific to me. Like, I feel yeah. like you really don't like that I had the audacity to correct you about my own skill set. So I also like, I had a fifth grade teacher who at the time was like my favorite teacher that I'd ever had. And then I remember that she gave me this nickname, Babbling Bethany. And she gave me this nickname publicly in front of this class, oh, no. which means that for the rest of the school year, every white boy felt valid in telling me to be quiet whenever he wanted because my teacher had publicly assigned to me this identity of of talking out of turn or talking too much yet again i never got in trouble never had my name on the board never went to 
the principal's office, never my parents called. So clearly I wasn't actually disruptive. You just interpreted me talking as me talking too much and you decided to give everybody a, approval to, to treat me the same way, to say the same thing. So mm. Naima is like the person who like, I see you. Like I see what I see what you're I see what you're doing. Um, I'm not going to apologize for knowing who I am. I'm not going to apologize for knowing that I'm exactly what I am, which is the shit. And <laughs> I'm you know if I'm upset and if I'm mad, you're not going to distract and and sort of like focus on trying to make it wrong for me to be mad. I'm going to stay focused on why I'm mad. I'm going to bring to your attention what you did to upset me versus be put in my place by you criticizing you know because nobody likes a mad black girl um mm-hmm. so she definitely <laughs> i love naima um <laughs> which isn't to say she didn't make any mistakes but i'm like um pretty sure other people did in that book too and nobody has seemed to have a problem with it yeah. because who they did it to was naima mm. so yeah i'm very excited for that book to come out i will be very very interested to uh to hear people's explanations for some of the comments that i have seen <laughs> yeah why, why they maybe changed their mind yeah about their really opinion. Interested. yeah yeah we're really excited to read that too i mean i'm speaking for myself me too we hear. Me too. Yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> now i'm hooked you got me <laughs> yeah. i cannot wait i'm very excited i i just saw the first uh set of cover sketches which is always like i'm so excited so oh yeah. man well the cover of this one is so fab, so fab. <laughs> Alex Cabal. So I can't wait to see. So photogenic. Is it going to be the same illustrator yes. here? Yes. Awesome. Love it. Very excited. So kind of switching gears, we um, accidentally tied our podcast to drinking wine. I don't know if it was fully announced, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it's now our tradition to ask our guests, what is your favorite reading drink and what's your favorite writing drink? And they don't have to be alcoholic cool because they're super not um so (laughs) my favorite writing drink is a glass of ice water next to me that melts and I never drink because I forget that it's there and (laughs) my favorite reading drink is nothing because I'm reading (laughs) it's funny that we asked this question because if I had to answer it myself like I can't if I'm drinking like a cocktail or something, I'm not focusing on the book. <laughs> exactly. If I'm actually reading and I'm not talking about like holding a book and pretending to read, like if I'm actually reading, I'm not going to be drinking. And if I'm writing, I'm not going to be drinking. So mm-hmm. if you want to know what I drink when I watch Bob's Burgers, it is either ice water. Um, at all, It's all going to be ice. Ice water, ice Arizona uh, tea, ginseng with honey. Oh, yeah. um, and ice pepsi which i am extremely embarrassed about and it has developed into an absolute addiction um <laughs> it's really bad because it's like i can't sometimes it's like i don't even want it i just made a routine out of it and so after mm-hmm. a certain number of days it'll be like well now i need a soda why i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i need don't a, be I embarrassed yeah no <laughs> there, you're not alone obviously <laughs> once it's, people it's like so their bad, pepsi but- uh, I know, but it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, also on our podcast, we talk about what we're currently reading and what we're planning to read next. So you talked about reading Grown, but do you have anything else on the docket or coming up? 
I am currently re I like to do this because it makes people jealous. So I'm obviously an author and a lot of what I'm reading is not out yet. So, so yeah, so grown is not out yet, but it is on my shelf and I'm very happy and I read it in a day. And mm -hmm. then I am currently reading Legend Born by Tracy Dion. So I had started reading it before, um, but I really, I cannot read on the screen unless I, you know, unless I'm editing or something. So, me too. Um, me yeah, too. <laughs> like, I can't do it. I cannot do it. So um, they finally sent me an actual arc and I'm so excited and I immediately started reading it again. Um, and it is so, it's one of those that I say, <laughs> this is like also a compliment to myself. Um, I also say that like Tracy Dion's work is is like so much like my work that it's like if you could write a book for yourself it's almost like why you can't tickle yourself right like because you i don't know you can't tickle yourself it's not funny um it's the same <laughs> sometimes with like with like books you can't i know you like emily's trying <laughs> our listeners obviously you can't see us emily just tried to tickle herself i just have to let everyone know so so it's the same with like sometimes it's not that I don't read my own work but I don't usually read it from from cover to cover again unless I'm reading it with somebody so reading Tracy Dion's is like this is a book that is exact this is what this is how I would have written it this is what I would have written I just I love it so much it's like it's like if you could tickle yourself so I'm very I am very much in love with her prose I'm very much in love with the layering that she does and like the very incisive commentary that she's doing with like because it's also contemporary fantasy um and it's set in North Carolina which is where she's from and um it's Arthurian legend and folklore and stuff but it's also black American and it deals with grieving and like it's so it's so much it's so 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 good. I think we'd like it yes definitely adding it to our list it, there's actually right now there is an exclusive excerpt up on tour.com it actually just went up today um mm -hmm. and it's actually a scene that I, I that I love so um yes you have to go on tour.com and read the exclusive it's gonna be huge we it's I'm I'm telling you right now pre-order <laughs> okay um so where can our listeners find you online if for some reason you wanted more of this, you can find me <laughs> on Twitter all the time. Um, I am mostly on Twitter. I am on Instagram, but I don't understand Instagram. And so I'll do like stories because it's basically sometimes I'll just like actually screenshot my tweets and put them in my stories because I just like want everywhere to be Twitter. Um, <laughs> so yeah, mostly Twitter. I'm BC Morrow for both of those though. So BC Morrow on Instagram and BC Morrow on Twitter. Um, that's pretty much it. Anywhere else I tell you, I'd be lying. I don't actually check it. Um, <laughs> you can go to the website. There is a contact form on my website. It's bethanycmorrow.com. Um, but You'll, you'll find anything out about me soonest on Twitter, and then I'll eventually update my website. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. We could stay here and talk to you for hours and hours. Literally I'm hours. Like... My head was just like a bobblehead the whole time, which no one could see. But <laughs> Yeah, it was like, uh-huh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a complete pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.